tonight my topic is the um, seven factors of enlightenment. I have two initial comments. You'll probably hear me use the word awakening and the word enlightenment. And I'll be using those interchangeably. So in this talk tonight, they won't mean anything different from each other. And in a moment, you will receive a list of the seven factors. So don't worry if you don't know what they are. I will get it to you just within a couple minutes after some uh, beginning comments. The Buddha said, how amazing that all living beings have the basic nature of awakening, yet they don't know it. So they drift on the ocean of great suffering, lifetime after lifetime. That's a very sad thing to think about. All humans have the potential to awaken, to be enlightened, to see reality as it is. But most of us don't know it. For those of us who do know that awakening is possible, and probably even for those who don't know it, Thich Nhat Hanh thinks, and I, I um, think the same with him, that enlightenment grows all the time, that it doesn't just happen once and then it's complete and finished. To me, that is very encouraging. Uh, it encourages me to trust <clears throat> how I've already changed and to find ways to deepen my Dharma practice and to bring it into my daily activities continually. The seven factors of enlightenment describe both the path to becoming awakened and also the characteristics of someone who is awakened. So the, they describe both a process and a set of qualities that we can all develop. Consciously keeping these seven factors alive in our minds is a way to encourage enlightenment or awakening. But in addition, it is said in Buddhist commentaries that these very same factors are the qualities of a noble person. That is, someone who very deeply knows the four noble truths. Jack Kornfield, who is a, a clinical psychologist as well as a meditation teacher, has another way of referring to these seven factors of enlightenment. He calls them a Buddhist description of human development, of wise human development. For Jack, these factors are qualities of optimal mental health. Optimal mental health. Something we could all aspire to. Uh, Jack points out that Buddhist psychology relies not so much on therapeutic intervention, the way we do in the West, but on inner training to bring about our own transformation. And believe me, when people realize they are capable of um, going through this kind of inner training and they begin to see the benefits, the motivation to continue to guide the mind, to develop the mind is huge. Controlling the factors of our own mind results in changing our actions. And changing what we do changes how we are in the world. It changes how the world sees us. It changes how we see the world. It brings transformation. 
doing this consciously and with wisdom does bring us closer to the end of suffering and it benefits not just myself, not just yourself, but everyone around us. It opens me up and it opens you up to the real potential for awakening that each one of us has. And I want to tell you how I have observed this um, in a particular instance in the jail class that Jennifer referred to. I had a woman come in one day, uh, her name was Miriam, uh, and she came in to the first day of her meditation class at Elmwood. And the first thing she said as she walked into the class chattering away, she walked up to me and said, I have, AD, I have ADHD and I can't do this. And she stayed in the class. She walked around. She chattered for a lot of the class. She looked out the window. She visited with other people. And I continued to try to hold a container of peace for the class as this was going on. And then afterwards, she came up to me and she said, and she always called me teacher. She said, teacher, this is too hard for me. I can't do it. You don't know how hard this is. And I said to her, you're right. I don't know how hard it is for you. But I will tell you, it won't hurt you. So, which I truly believe. Uh, but it, I didn't tell her the other part, which is it still could feel unpleasant, but it won't hurt. <laughs> So the next week she came again, uh, which rather surprised me because she really uh, emphasized how hard it was, but she came again. It was the same thing, but there were some spaces in between the disruptions. And I noted that and didn't say anything about it. And the third week she came again, and suddenly I saw this transformation in her. She had long periods of quiet, and she sat still for periods of time. And she came up to me after the class and she said, teacher, I think I'm getting it. <laughs> and she said, I think maybe I can do it. And I said, I think maybe you can. And she continued to come to the class every week for five more weeks. It's an eight week sequence of, of classes. And as she went through these weeks, she quieted down more, she sat more and more still. She would shush everybody around her because she said, I want to hear. She would make a great racket explaining how she wanted to hear. So she would shush people. I personally have never seen such a transformation in behavior in a person. It appeared to be very sincere. I think she was probably very ready to hear this and suddenly took heart from the fact that she was actually changing herself. She came to me at the end. At the end of eight weeks, she was ready to be released. And she said, teacher, I'm so grateful. I appreciate so much what you did. You changed my life. And I said, no. I said, I set conditions and I gave you instructions. You changed your life. If you see a difference, it's because of what you did. It's because of the transformation that you yourself have gone through. I think this was the most important thing she could have learned in jail, the possibility of awakening. I think she awakened. Now, whether it continued awakening as she left, I don't know. These people are released and they go on about their life and I often don't hear from them again. But. Uh, I suggest that you take a page out of Miriam's book. It can happen, and it can happen from the power of 
simply observing your mind and then guiding it very skillfully. These seven factors of enlightenment are very powerful tools when we understand them in helping us to do that, this mental, uh, optimal mental um, development for us. These are the lists, uh, and if maybe uh, you would pass these around, I have more copies if this isn't enough to go around. And please look it over as it's being passed. You'll notice that there are seven, and that the, need some more in the back? Just go ahead, any extras, please pass forward or just hold until the end and pass them forward. So please look it over while they're being passed. And notice that these, and go ahead and read the, the comments on it, it's quite brief. These are the characteristics of awakening, the intrinsic qualities of the liberated mind, of the heart that has opened. And they are also a path to enlightenment. So there are two ways of looking at these factors. Thich Nhat Hanh describes the factors as one tree with seven limbs. And these seven limbs grow year by year, sending out new life, new shoots, new leaves. Please notice that the very first factor is mindfulness, overarching all. It is inherently skillful because it remembers the critical need for balance among these factors. Notice there are some factors that are considered energizing and some that are calming. Notice that there are three of each. So both are valued, both are of equal importance on the path. We put the emphasis on balance because um, neither energy nor calm is more important. Both are needed. So as you look at your list, you'll see two columns. One side for the energizing factors, investigation, effort, joy. The other side is the calming factors, calm or peace, sometimes tranquility we call it, concentration, and equanimity. Within the pairs, the members of each pair are said to balance each other. Investigation, calm, effort, concentration, joy, equanimity, with mindfulness constantly keeping you aware of the relationship between those, between the two of the pair and, between, and among all of the factors. The pairs are not opposites. It's not about eliminating one factor in order to develop another. The factors are not either or in relationship. It's more about knowing which factor to be attentive to, which one to develop as the conditions of our practice change. And I'm sure you have noticed changing conditions in practice. Sometimes we feel really attentive and with it, and sometimes it's a real slog just to get through a meditation. That's been my experience. These are the factors I turn to when I need to work with these differing conditions. When our practice is balanced, all of these factors are present in the same proportion. It's not like one's, one is really high and one is really low. 
they in balance are all at about the same level and I believe as we become more experienced that level slowly raises that all the factors become more and more lively in our practice. I picture it sort of like um, a sound display. I used to have a stereo and when the sound would come through all these bars would go up according to how the sound was and I think my computer has the same thing if I want it when I play music. The, you know, the sound bars go up and down. And so I picture it like that, and I think of mindfulness as the understanding of which knob to turn to bring this bar up some more. Or if it were a soundboard, which switch to slide to get that good balance. You know, in the sound, it's like treble, bass, the medium tones. We want everything to be operative in our practice. We don't want one up here and one just about gone. It's not about having one over the other. It's about using all of them. So the Buddha did not have a stereo to use as an example like I just did. He uses, in, in the suttas, fire as an example. He mentions in the suttas, if the mind becomes sluggish, depressed, and listen to the words he used, it is untimely to develop the factors of tranquility, of concentration, of equanimity. Doing that would be the same as if you had a, this is what the Buddha says, if you had a little fire and you wanted it to grow, what would happen if you threw wet grass on it, wet cow dung on it, wet timber on it, if you sprinkled it with water, if you covered it with, with dirt? And in the sutta, the monks answer, it would be extinguished. And the Buddha says, that's very right. When the mind is sluggish, it is difficult to arouse it with these calming factors. But he said, if the mind is sluggish, it is timely to develop the um, arousing factors, investigation, energy, rapture. So that is like having a little fire and throwing dry fuel on it, dry timber of not sprinkling it with water, not throwing dirt on it. It is skillful and it is easy to arouse the mind, the sluggish mind, with these um, uh, arousing factors of investigation, energy, and joy. So what about if we're the sort of person who has an agitated mind, agitated, restless, like Miriam? So the Buddha would say it is untimely to turn to the factors of investigation, energy, and rapture. These are arousing factors. And the example of the fire, he says, if you had a bonfire and you tried to put it out by throwing dry fuel and dry cow dung and dry timber on it, and if you blow on it and fan it, will the bonfire go out? And of course the monks say, no, sir, the bonfire will expand and, and get larger. So the Buddha concludes, if the mind is excited, it is not timely to be using the arousing factors. And again, turning to the fire, it is timely to use the calming factors. And so the fire example says, you want to calm the bonfire? Wet grass, wet cow dung, wet timber, throw the water on it, throw some soil on it. The fire will calm down and go out. So the Buddha concludes, this is the key, when the mind is excited, it is easy to calm the mind with the calming factors. So notice those two words that I use, timely and untimely. It's not wrong to use the arousing factors. It's not wrong to use calming factors. But we, we have to use them in a timely way.
This is where mindfulness comes in. Um, the Buddha finished this teaching in the suttas by saying, but mindfulness bhikkhus, I say, is always useful. So that is always the number one factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. These seven factors are often used by teachers during retreats in order to help guide students as they make it through a long period of, of all kinds of um, days of meditation when their energy levels might be very different on different days. For instance, if somebody is sleepy, the teacher will consider these factors very specifically, might not mention it specifically to the student, but they will consider what would increase energy. The student is too calm, needs more energy. We'll talk about some of those ways in a minute. And if someone comes and is totally ecstatic, the teacher will give instructions on how to be more calm so that other things can enter besides this ecstasy. There's a story I've heard about a monk who was teaching a retreat, and one student came to him um, rather disgruntled and said, why is it that you're telling my friend one thing and you're telling me the opposite thing? I don't get it. And the monk said, well, I see him on the path, and he's veering to the right, and he's about to fall off a cliff. So I shout, go left, go left. And then he says, I see you on the path, and you're veering to the left, and you're about to step into a raging river. So I shout to you, go right, go right. Um, the both of you then can move safely into the center of the path. It is the center that leads to skillful growth. And I was put in mind as I was remembering this anecdote of my little dog, who is a real tracker. And when he finds a, a scent trail, first thing he does is zigzag like that down the trail. And he goes, say he goes to the left, and he finds, okay, there's no more scent over there, and he overcorrects, and he goes to the right. No, it's not over there. And he slightly less overcorrects to the left, and then slightly left, less to the right. And eventually, after this kind of slowing zigzag, he is like a little slot car right down the middle of that path can follow it for many yards before he's called back home. So you can think of a little terrier just tracing the path of growth by mm, too much here, mm, too much on that side. Let's see where we can find a real balance. That, that's how it works. However, most of the time we are not on retreat. We're just practicing. So that's when it's useful to know these factors for yourself as a way to guide yourself along the path, a little to the left, a little to the right. For example, um, in your general practice, if mindfulness doesn't seem as clear as it has been, if you don't feel as attentive, if you don't feel like it's going well, that can be depressing. You feel discouraged, maybe just kind of damped down. So the need to pull out of this state may become apparent with mindfulness. So. How can we do it? We look for inspiration, for encouragement. A good Dharma talk can brighten the mind. It can bring that sense of joy. It can help us turn toward a deeper investigation. It can encourage more skillful effort. These are things that bring more energy to our practice. The opposite experience is when one is flooded with joy and exhilaration. <clears throat> Sayadaw Upandita 
sees that some people are beaming and six feet off the ground during a retreat. They cannot keep their mind on anything. They bounce from object to object. These are the people who have excessive energy. They're too far over to the energy side. So mindfulness will know that we need more tranquility in this kind of practice. A way to calm down our attention, a way to calm our energy, is to narrow the focus of attention. Um, I find this for myself. If I'm under, uh, if I'm feeling particularly irritated or agitated or concerned about something, that brings me a great sense of restlessness. Narrowing my attention to something, uh, not more than two objects, just breath, just sound. Maybe the two objects, breath, alternately with sound, but not opening to a wide attention. That narrowing calms the mind. In my experience, that works very well. Uh, you can encourage equanimity by reminding yourself there's no point in rushing through this practice or even this meditation period. The only thing that matters is to watch what's happening, whether it's easy or difficult, good or bad, just to be there for it. The Dhamma will unfold by itself. I think each one of us probably has a tendency uh, in practice. For me, I naturally tend toward the quieter factors. So my effort more often uh, requires me to consciously attend to energizing myself, to bringing the energizing factors in. Otherwise, it's very easy for me to just kind of zone out in a meditation or even a longer retreat. But on the other hand, if you are typically a restless, agitated person, you will need to lessen the arousal. You will need to turn to the calming factors to help you find that center place. There is a way to work with these factors even in a single meditation period whether the meditation period is 20 minutes or 40, 45 minutes, um, you can find ways to practice being balanced even within that short time. So for me, it's very normal for a, a daily meditation period to start with some agitation. Um, the planning of the day, the activities of the day are still present for me, um, obligations, future possibilities, things happening in relationships. Mindfulness sees all of this and knows that in this beginning time of uh, meditation, it is timely to turn toward the calming factors. So this is when I personally would turn very closely toward the breath. And I would probably just stay as much as possible, as closely as possible, with a general sense of the breath. I might vary that with turning towards sound for a few minutes, back to breath. Staying with that calm until the agitation of the beginning seems leveled out, until I feel a bit more balanced in practice. What often happens then is, after that's been going on for a while, the very calmness becomes a little sluggish. It becomes a little um, dull. And so then, when I wake up to that fact, I realize, okay, it's time to raise energy again. 
So then I raise energy with investigation, looking perhaps more closely at the breath, being very observant of more of the qualities of the breath. And if that is not so arousing, then I might open my awareness wider to more body sensations, um, to sounds around me, to feeling tone, to emotions, just a broader awareness bringing in a bit more stimulation, which is arousing. And again, if that goes off into agitation or restlessness, coming back and narrowing the focus again. So you might go through this cycle during one meditation period, and it might last 40 minutes, or you might go through this cycle two or three times or more during a meditation period. Um, whatever seems to be a good way to work and balance these factors is what needs to happen. We start, we work with calming, and then we work with, with energizing. This kind of balance, when it is successful, tends to lead us toward that sense of equanimity. You learn to trust your ability to, uh, to guide your mind in a skillful and healthy way, no matter what arises during meditation. You know that you have a way to guide it. There is another way to look at these seven factors. And that is as a model for the progressive stages of insight all the way up to awakening. This is how the Buddha saw the seven factors, as the path one takes that leads on to awakening. And here's how that progression can operate. Think about this. Just think of it as kind of a pathway that we could follow. Mindfulness opens our awareness to everything making investigation of every experience we possibly have possible. Nothing is excluded. Mindfulness brings everything in. Joy and interest arise then when investigation leads you to understand the truth, the reality of everything that's coming into your experience, a very joyful thing. With the support of joyful practice, calmness, arises, bringing stability. And with that calm stability, then concentration can deepen. First it arises more, and then it really can deepen. And then equanimity arises. Equanimity is both the fruit of practice and the process by which you can continue to keep that balance between energetic and calming factors under the watchful eye of mindfulness. To me, this is that paradoxical state of effortless effort. At some point, um, we've all been in that state of flow in some activity where everything is working. We're not having to um, fight ourselves to achieve something. We're not falling asleep because it's boring. It is just we lose ourselves and the activity continues. This effortless effort is what arises when these factors are in balance and brings a great deal of happiness, I think, into our practice. Sayadaw Upandita, again, does offer us a skillful reminder, and it's this. It is normal to have times when our practice seems smooth and balanced and supportive, 
And it is just as normal, just as normal, sometimes to feel unbalanced and as if we've lost it all, that our skills are just not there. <clears throat> A little child cries in frustration and screams in delight. This is part of childhood, and it happens because of growing into the experiences of life. It's normal. The truth is we feel this way about our practice sometimes. We want to give it up, or we just laugh in delight because it's such a pleasure. These reactions signal that our practice is changing, is progressing. It's going from one stage to another. It's turning from one place to another, just like my little dog, kind of finding the, the edges. We reach our growing edges, and then we come to the center in order to get that balance. So Upandita says, if you feel your practice is falling apart, do not worry. You may be just like a little child who is in transition between stages of growth. That could be us. So learning to work with these seven factors can bring us skill and confidence as we guide our own mind toward optimal mental health. Thank you. We have plenty of time if you have observations or questions. Margaret, it really inspires me to hear a story like you told about Mary from the correctional facility. And at the risk of um, wanting more of a good thing, <laughs> are there any other stories you can share? Um, I just find it very impressive that um, about beginning meditators in, 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 a, in a jail where they're pretty far away from mindfulness most likely, haven't had the advantages of being exposed to it. Yeah, and it um, makes me very aware of how important it is uh, that Education has nothing to do with it. Prior experience um, really doesn't seem to have anything to do with it, but that some people have a readiness to hear the instructions. I, when I first started and knew nothing about dealing with these people, I had a really challenging student. Melissa was her name. And she would, uh, she had had, some, her mother taught her how to meditate, she said. I have no idea what this meant to her, to her. But in her experience, you meditated by lying down. So she wanted to lie down for meditation. Well, you can guess what would happen in a jail situation if the whole class were permitted to lie down on the floor. They'd all go to sleep. So I said, mm, one week you can lie down, and one week you sit up the way I teach it. So let's try it that way. So that's what we did over her time. She would alternate lying down with sitting up. And she was the student who said to me, I was carrying on about mindfulness or something, and she was just sitting there like this. And she said, Miss Margaret, what is the difference between the brain and the mind? And that one wasn't too hard. And so I carried on some more, went back to whatever the topic was. And she, she goes, Miss Margaret, what is the difference between the mind and the soul? And I thought, holy jeez. And I said, you know, there have been philosophers considering that for thousands of years. And I don't feel qualified to say, which was absolutely the truth as far as I knew it. 
And she thought that was very reasonable. And so we had these kind of funny ins and outs, and I couldn't tell. I thought she she really began to take in what I was saying as opposed to whatever her mother said to her when she was a child. And she said, yeah, I think what you're saying is pretty good. I, I believe you, and I like the way you let me do it my way, and I could try your way too. And then one day I came in, and she said, man, I put it to the test last night. She said, I got in trouble, and they put me in solitary, and I had to sit. And solitary is just a very little room. Probably it's got a toilet, and it's got a sink, and probably a bed, and that's it. And they are put in there when they've gotten very agitated or they've started a fight. It's, it's kind of a cooling-off place, a disciplinary place. They're not left there for days, but for maybe hours at a time. And she said, they put me in there, and I was hating it. And then I could hear what was going out on outside. And so she said, I thought I would try meditating. So I sat there, and I was sitting there. And she said, then I, could, I was aware of what was going on, and I thought, oh, they're only doing pill call, which is when the inmates get their medicines. And then I realized, oh, they're only on the seaside, and they've got to go all the way around. I'm going to be in here forever. And then I did what she said. I just listened to my breath and so forth. And she said, before I knew it, they came and got me. (laughs) And she said, I walked out of there. I was so proud of myself. She said, I was ready to kick butt. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's being proud of yourself. So... People do get it. Uh, And one other story that I I really like, because as I said, mostly the people in the class, if they don't re-offend and come back in the class, which has happened for some people four and five times, just a couple of those, um, uh, I never know what's happened to them. And there are some people who sit in the class, and they will absolutely sit sideways in the chair to let me know how much they hate it and how much they're not listening. And my favorite thing is when, like after two or three classes, they kind of turn around and they kind of participate and and they really get into it as the weeks go by. I love that because I see that, you know, it isn't about me and it isn't about anything except their being willing to just let it come in and soak in. Uh, one woman left the class, finished her sentence, went outside, And she actually called back in to the officer, the rehab officer, who I am in contact with for this class. And she said, tell her it works. (laughs) And she gave the example. She said, I was sitting on a bus. I was going to this job that I got after I got out. I had money in my pocket. And who got on the bus next to me but my dealer? And she said, Everything was right for me to make a buy, everything. It was exactly what I knew how to do, and the dealer knew me. And she said I could hear her voice saying, breathe, pay attention to your breath. And I did it. She said, you know, they they all said, and I did what you said. It's like, good. She said, I did it, and it worked. I got off the bus, and I didn't buy. So, you know, maybe that one time it worked, maybe another time it didn't. I can't say, but that pleases me very much. Yes? I just got done with a course on um, science and meditation at Stanford, and um, there was a study done in, I think it was the University of Washington by a woman out there. Who's, um, she, she did a Vipassana course uh, in the all 10, it was basically a 10-day Vipassana retreat, 
I, I've heard that anecdotally. Do you have any um, reference to that study? I have a I'd love it if you'd email me. I, I would love if you email me that. Thank you. Yes. There's actually a movie called Doing Time Vipassana that's in the Indian prison system. Yeah, I've heard of it and I haven't I seen have, it. I actually have. I recorded it off of the TV, so if you want me to make you a copy, I'd I love it. Thank you. Yeah, um, and that brings up a little advertisement I have. Uh, I am looking for a teacher who would like to be teaching for the Department of Corrections. Um, in an outside program, there is a, uh, there are, after five years, I've, there's finally another meditation class in jail, and we've got one other teacher in an outside program. I would love, and she's teaching men, I would love to have a teacher for women in, and, and an outside program in Department of Corrections means people are sentenced, but they're able to live at home and fulfill their sentence by attending classes from eight to four every day. And so once a week, we would love to have a meditation teacher go in and teach these women also the skills of mindfulness meditation. Yes. I'm, I'm having trouble hearing you. Yeah. You know, I, I cannot tell what exactly it was that influenced her. She. Yeah, she's the one. She told me. I can only believe what she said. Um, I will say this about teaching for uh, teaching in the jail. I could talk about this for the rest of the week, probably. Um, you can't always tell how people are reacting to your teaching. I have had people, as I said, sit in class and sit like this for weeks, and I don't have a clue what's going on. And those are the very people who will stop me in the yard sometimes as I'm coming in or out and say, you know, your class made such a difference for how I live inside the dorm. It's much easier for me to get along in there now. And I think, well, you could have fooled me. I couldn't tell you were even. <laughs> you know, I can't even tell they're listening sometimes. They are, um, for the most part, they're as courteous as they know how to be, with some notable exceptions of defiance. Um, they're mostly very courteous. And I always make it a point to tell them I'm a volunteer. Because to me that, and I always tell them I'm 65 years old, the most valuable thing I have in my life is time. And I'm giving it to you. And I tell them that because I want them to feel valued. And I do value them because they are, I mean, they're like um, the best examples I can see of people taking in this teaching and making it their own and changing in really meaningful ways. And a meaningful way for them might be just not starting a fight in the dorm or not getting into a fight that's already started. So many people have trouble with impulse control in this population. And there's constant noise and screaming and arguing over the television and who's touched who and who stood in front of who. And people who are not even involved in the fight get involved just because they can't stop themselves yelling back at all the racket. And for me to think that they could spend three breaths and think, why should I get involved? It's nothing to do with me. The whole dorm could be peaceful if 20 people in my class didn't do that. So 
it's in a way maybe small changes that people are able to make, but I have seen people suddenly understand that they can start to process childhood abuse, that they can start to process grief and do it safely with the skills of mindfulness. It, I mean, it gives me goosebumps just to say it, but it gives me even more goosebumps to see it when people's faces sort of open and say, oh, I can think about my sister who died. It's okay to feel those feelings, and I won't be destroyed by them. And the really difficult ones are the women who've been abused by their mother's boyfriend for 10 years, by their own father, um, who've been abandoned by their mothers, who are trying to raise their own little sister and keep their mother off heroin. The things these people go through, as Miriam said, you don't know how hard it is. I don't know how hard it is for them. But sometimes they tell me, and then I think, what have I got to teach them? And then I think this. This is what I have, and I offer it freely. And then they make of it what seems to be useful for them. Yes? Um, I, I knew something about mindfulness when um, I was uh, a psychiatric nurse. And um, we taught classes in mindfulness, and there was one woman, it's anecdotal, but there was one woman who uh, was very cooperative in taking her meds, but uh, in, with the agreement of her psychiatrist, asked if she could try that without her meds. And um, I knew her for about a year, year and a half, up to, uh, probably up to that. And she had been able, she joined a group around here someplace, I haven't seen her yet. But it's now been seven years, and she has not had to take her. Wow. So, and that's a real genetic, um, mm -hmm. uh, at least a partly genetic quality, because it occurs in families. But, I, and I know impulse control, I, I mean, I've seen that again. Yeah, I've heard of that anecdotally happening with people who are depressives, who um, when they, one man I read about who was in a study and received a placebo and suddenly realized when he reduced his depression it was not because of some medicine, it was something that happened. And he said, I'm not taking that medicine anymore, I'm going to try it, and was able to. So focusing like with depressives, if you told them, to focus on anything else and keep your mind yeah. on that, yeah. they would record a great effect. Yeah, I, I use um, even these factors of enlightenment. I won't use those terms. I don't teach Buddhism in jail. But I will use so much of what I understand from Buddhist teaching um, that can be useful, as, as Jack Kornfield said, optimal mental health um, can come from this. And so when I put it in different terms, they can understand it, and that's where I work very hard as a teacher to present it in vocabulary and in terms that is very accessible. Yes? What I'm curious about is I'm thinking that as you teach meditation, you teach focusing on the breath and just letting thoughts, you know, okay, I'm thinking, just let go of it and not think. And then you were talking about that they learned that they could have their feelings and not be destroyed by them. And so I'm wondering how you combine the teaching of focus on your breath and having your feelings. Well, that's five years of experience figuring out 
how to do that. And it's also the problem of changing uh, population within the class. In other words, this is a jail. Some people are in the class once, and then they go out, they're released, or they're in another program. Some people are in it for uh, 10 months. They, you can be in this jail up for up to a year. So I can't give you one answer to that. But every week I try to um, let them know I'm there because I want to be, because they're valuable, because I know that they are able to learn how to work with their own um, interior lives to make their life better, to make changes if they want to. I include movement, which helps them to wake up, to be mindful in gentle Qigong movement. I always include a component of mm, talking. And the talking would be, how do we handle emotions? How do we deal with the racing mind that is worried all the time, that's fearful, that can't forget hard things that happen? And then we do meditation in various forms, for two minutes, for one minute, for 15 minutes, all during the class, different ways of meditating. I have found that I can't teach it just the way I teach it here. It's the same underlying content, but different um, approaches because of the... And from week to week, the changing uh, population in the class makes me change what I thought I was going to do. Some people cannot sit still for 15 minutes at one go. Some people, as a group, really get into it and then I will extend it and drop something else out of the class. It, it's very, uh, it is, for me, the most powerful mindfulness practice that I do because I go in with a plan, but I'm constantly prepared to alter the plan. Conditions change. I mean, one time we had a power outage. One time uh, we had about 10 interruptions in the same hour-and-a-half class, people knocking on the door for this and that. This is not unusual. This is normal stuff going on. Um, one time there was a big fight, and we had to just leave. It wasn't in my class, luckily. But things happen. The ambulance turns up outside the door, and, you know, everybody. So then we have to include that in mindfulness. Where did our minds go? Is that wrong? No, it's what our minds do. So we take all of these distractions and turn them into material for mindfulness. Yes? Well, I was wondering if uh, somebody does get in uh, touch with very deeply repressed feelings and suddenly experiences them and acts out in the class. How do you handle that? I have personally have not had that. I have had people get in touch with those feelings but have a sense that they were able to be with them. Um, perhaps it's just the, the fact that this is the only quiet place in the jail is during this class time. Literally, it's the only quiet they ever get. Uh, even at night, people are released into their uh, cell block and they scream and they shout and they fight the officers and the whole place wakes up. This class is the only quiet they get. And now there's a guy teaching um, algebra next door to my class. So during the meditation, we're hearing algebra being taught. Very challenging, more challenging for me than them. They're used to noise. I'm not. Um, I can't believe people learn in these conditions, and they do, and they do. So even that um, deep arising of things, somehow or another, we're able to um, hold it in awareness. And, and really, I think the mindfulness teaching of 
notice that what frightens you is not happening now. Your feelings about it are happening now. We can touch those feelings and then turn away to something neutral like the breath. So with that kind of guidance, it's a very powerful teaching when people realize, oh, that was when I was a little girl. This is now, what I'm feeling is fear, but I can just feel that and it will go away and I can turn to my breath if it's too much. They learn all these tools and it's just mindfulness. Yes? Um, you mentioned that uh, if, we need to, if, if there's a need to access the energizing factors to look for inspiration and encouragement, can you um, give some more examples of sure. Sure. Um, I love reading books on this topic. I find a lot of inspiration from authors. Um, friends in the Dharma are, are just wonderful inspirations. People who come to this Sangha come early and talk about something. I mean, don't chit-chat about your last date. Talk about the Dharma with people who are also trying to learn it. That's a wonderful inspiration, I think. Um, the one-day retreats or half-day retreats that are available are wonderful. Longer retreats are good. The only caution I have is do not substitute that for practice. In other words, we can spend all day reading a book and never meditate. I'm very good at that. Oh, I'm too tired to meditate. I've been reading this book. Um, it's not the same thing. You hear the talk and you put it into practice. You read the book, you put it into practice. You hear your friend suggest something, you try it too. The trying it out in experience is practice. The reading supports practice. We are after nine. Uh, if you would like to ask anything more, I'll be here for a little bit. Thank you very much for your time and attention.